Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, I just want to let you know about an amazing company, an amazing product that we use in our home every day. The company is Ballish Woodwork. It is owned by my friend Kurt Ballish. He makes homemade woodworks. And for my wife, which you know I love and adore, last Mother's Day, I got her a homemade cutting board made by Kurt and is the only cutting board that we will use in our home. So if you guys love homemade woodwork and you would love to make a piece maybe for your wife, maybe a chessboard, maybe something special for your home, Definitely check out BalishWoodworks.com. Tell them that Richard and Vertical Momentum sent you guys. Have an amazing day. Remember, Vertical Momentum, the only way to go is but up. So the Vertical Momentum, this is going to be a great episode, guys. Uh, The gentleman we're going to be talking to is a veteran talk show host, also a great author of a brand new book that I thoroughly enjoyed. We hop it into that today. Peter, my brother, what's going on? Not much. How you doing? Oh, man, every, every day's a great day, brother. Every day is a good day. And now I get to hang out with you. Come on. It can't get any better than that. I wish everybody felt that way. <laughs> so what's going on? How was your day? It was good. I have a, you know, I'm a, I'm a mailman in, in the, uh, the real world. And today was, wasn't bad for a Monday. Where are you located at? Central Pennsylvania, a little tiny town called Belfont. Okay. I know it very well, matter of fact. Um, my grandparents, well, now that they, they, when they passed away, they lived up in Pennsylvania. So we got to, I used to love going up there and on a Sunday, just driving through all the little towns and checking out all the little restaurants and stuff. And that was a great town to be in. So tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from, um, where you grew up at, and what kind of little boy were you? Well, I was uh, was born in Montour Falls, New York, a little tiny town in the Finger Lakes region. Um, by the time I graduated high school, I had lived in New York, Pennsylvania, California, and Florida. I uh, wow, you, you got, guess you got you got around a lot, huh? Yeah, moved around quite a bit. Went to three different high schools before I graduated. Uh, as a little one, I loved to play army. I was I was the kid that always had a toy gun. Now, now, did you move around a lot because of the parents' jobs? You know, I, I'm not really sure. I never really asked my parents and talked to them about it. Um, okay. My, my parents were divorced uh, when I was really young, and there was a little bit of that moving was moving back and forth between parents. Like, I lived with my father initially and then uh, went to live with my mom. The mom got remarried, and eventually we moved to Florida. And then they divorced, and mom got married again, and now did you you know because i know like i moved i think i moved like 15 times before i even hit junior high school so from doing that i never really made friends or built relationships because i was like hey i'm not going to be here next year anyway so it really doesn't matter if you like me or not did you have any of those issues yeah i i didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up i finally settled down for the last two years of high school so my my junior year i was the new kid by senior year i had started to get a couple of now, were you an athlete, or were you good in school? No, I uh, I was a loner kid. Um, I was I was uh, relatively smart, but I refused to do homework. So as long as I could get the work done during school, or as long as it was a teacher who actually explained the lesson plans and things like that, where I could actually learn it in in the classroom, I did fine. Um, I did have a job as soon as I was old enough to have a job, so I worked almost every day after school in uh, at a Wendy's actually. So I guess you you had a, a strong work ethic, I would take it? I would think so, yeah. Um, I, I thought pretty early on, pretty young, I, I always wanted my boss, my, my company, to make as much money as possible because that was the only way they could afford to give me a raise. 
Wow, that's totally opposite of what people think today. Now people think, wait a minute, I need to make more money. Who cares what the company makes? And then they don't realize that, you know, you own your job. And if you are if you don't make enough money for your job, you do not have a job. And we're going to talk about that later, especially I love that, you know, stuff about you talk about stuff like that in the book. So now you joined the military, correct? Yes, I, I went in the Navy straight out of high school. So tell me, because I love people's recruiting stories. So talk to us about your recruiting story. My recruiting story itself was pretty uneventful. I, I decided pretty early on that I was going to go in the military. Uh, my biggest question was what branch of military I was going to go into. I had taken uh, Air Force ROTC for the last two years of high school there. Uh, Air Force ROTC because uh, my, my high school was Satellite High School in Satellite Beach, Florida which is right outside of the Patrick Air Force Base. So we had an Air Force unit. Um, didn't want to go in the Air Force. And after doing some research, I had narrowed it down between the Navy and the Marine Corps. And uh, I actually choose, chose the Navy more for tradition than anything else. I looked at the Navy and I thought, you know, they haven't really changed their uniform in, a, in 250 years. And, and they still, you know, ring bells when people go on and off ships and just a lot of real tradition to it and i like that so i went in the navy i uh was at the uh the meps center the you know military entrance processing center on uh, new year's eve 1990 I, I... okay so now talk to us about going through basic and what it was like you know being from you know you moved around a lot so i'm sure you met a lot of different cultures but like I know when I got to uh, basic training, I was in total culture shock. So what was your experience like? Uh, basic training really wasn't terrible for me. Um, I, I had a, because of all the moving around and not having a whole lot of friends growing up, I pretty well had learned to adapt to almost in any situation. So the first week or so of basic training when most of the guys were crying themselves to sleep at night or just passed out from complete exhaustion, I was writing letters home and polishing my boots. Now, did you take to the military? Because, like, for me, I know um, me and the military, we didn't get along the first couple of years. Did you take to the military quickly? I, I took to it quickly, but unfortunately, I didn't stay. I, uh, I was a 4-0 sailor. I, I not only had, you know, perfect 4-0 evaluations, but my every line on my evaluation was always a 4.0. So, I was AJ squared away, as we used to say. Um, I had gone in as an E3 because of that ROTC in high school, was top of my company in basic training, could not be promoted above E3 coming out of basic training, um, and then went to my, my A school, and I was uh, number one in my A school as well, was rewarded by giving what they call IPO, instant petty officer, and what that meant was all I had to do is report to my first duty station, do my damage control qualifications and things like that. And I got to put E4 on. So I put E4 on my uniform with six months in service. So now did you get a lot of haters? No, no, I didn't get a whole lot of haters at all. But what I did do is I, I hit a brick wall when I went for E5. Uh, it was right at the time. So, so I put E4 on at six months. I was eligible to, to, uh, to make E5 with less than a year in service. So I took the test, and I scored very well on the test, but it was right when uh, Clinton had gotten elected, and he immediately started cutting the military. So they made zero E5s in my job class. I was a cook. They made zero E5 cooks that, that cycle. So I scored really well, and I had a letter of commendation in my record and all that kind of stuff but they didn't make any in the entire Navy. So when that happened to me three times, I said, okay, that's enough. So how many years did you do total? Uh, two years of active duty and then uh, six years in, re in the reserve. Okay. So now, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they get out, um, you know, now I've interviewed hundreds of, of veterans and a lot of them, like myself, I struggled a lot when I got out because, you know, I did over 20 years, but, everything was being Sergeant Kaufman. And um, I didn't know who Sergeant, you know, who Richard was at the end of my, my career. So what was your transitioning like out of the military? 
well, I had, I had worked at that Wendy's in high school that I mentioned earlier. And I went in the Navy and ended up being a cook in the Navy, even though I had gone to the Navy partly to learn something new. Um, the Navy made me a cook, so I was a cook. I got out of the Navy, actually went back to Wendy's as management. And on a personal level, I, re I really didn't have that. Tr I don't think I was in long enough to have that problem. So what was it like adjusting to civilian life? Was it just another just another step? Yeah, I, I didn't have much trouble with it at all. Um, my biggest frustration that I ever had was was reminiscing back to the days of, you know, in the military, you knew the guy next to you was going to do his job. When you're in the military and you don't do your job, you know, you, you could end up in the brig, you can lose your pay and all this other kind of, you know, in, in the civilian world, the, you don't do your job. The absolute worst thing that can possibly happen to you is you get fired. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I get it. But in, in, in the military, you know, if somebody screws up bad enough, uh, they don't come home. Right. Or, their, you know, or, or their battle buddy doesn't come home. So now talk to us about, you know, how did you get it? You know, I know you had a lot of jobs in between some some amazing uh, companies you worked for. But what made you decide, all right, postal service? Actually, I, I spent, I think it was 27 years in, in the hospitality industry, mostly in the restaurant world. Uh, got up, I had a pretty impressive resume. I worked some for some big companies. I worked for Walt Disney World. I worked for Darden Restaurants. I, I had been a cost control guy. I was food and beverage director at a hotel. I, you know, I had a, a big resume. And I, I just got really frustrated with management. I got tired of the fact that I couldn't have a vacation that my phone always rang on my day off, that, you know, every problem in the, in the building was always my problem. So I got frustrated with that and ended up being a mail carrier. Cause... And, and, and surprisingly you didn't get into, cause you know, we all, I was in help in, um, in retail and also restaurants for a long time. And there's easy ways to pick up a lot of bad habits. And, you know, especially because sometimes you're working from, you know, dusk to dawn, then everybody gets off at 12, one o'clock in the morning, everybody goes out and party. So you never fell into any of those traps, huh? Uh, when I was young, I, I did a lot of drinking after work, uh, you know, preferred to work the late shift and get done at 12, you know, 11 or 12, and then go hit the bars before I went home. Um, I grew out of that. Yeah. So now talk to us, you know, how long you've been in the postal service? Uh, I want to say seven years. Okay. And how are you enjoying it today? I tell a lot of people, post office sucks. The pay and the benefits are great, and it makes up for the job, but the job itself really sucks. And when people, when I say that, a lot of people go, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, well, think about it this way. On an average day, I handle, let's say, just to use round numbers, we'll say I handle 3,000 pieces of mail in a day. So that means I could... I could screw up 30 times and still have a 99% success rate. But I'm going get, to get yelled at by 30 different people, even though I have a 99% success rate. And there are not a whole lot of jobs out there where you can have a 99% success rate and get yelled at by that many different people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get, yeah. And I'm sure that you have to, you know, because um, I got a couple friends that are um, about to retire out of the out of the postal service, and they said when COVID happened, it kind of like everything kind of like hit hit the fan. So, what kind of changes did you have to go through? You know, because it's, it's not like you can say I'm not an essential worker. I don't have to come to work today. So, what was that like having to deal pivot in in COVID? There really was no pivot. It was just hey, here's more stuff for you to do. You know, everybody's staying home. Uh, they've got all that that stimulus money to spend. There was a lot more Amazon purchases, a lot more parcels to deliver. But other than that, the job didn't change. Uh, okay. So I'm, now, talk to us. I'm sorry, go ahead. That's right. I was just going to say, I'm on the rural side of the post office. So the city side of the post office, the people that wear the uniforms, they're paid by the hour. So if they work a long day, they get, they get benefit, benefit for that. They get paid overtime if necessary. On the rural side of things, we're paid a salary based on an average. So when the volume goes up, you know, 
dramatically because of, let's say, um, global pandemic, my pay doesn't go up. So all those of us on the rural side of the post office have been doing all of that extra work for over a year now, and we haven't made an extra dime for doing it. Wow. And, but like you said, there has to be some um, great things about the post, the, the postal service. Because I know a lot of friends are like, you know what? I may not like it today. But I have some good days and some bad days. And they, they've been in there like 25, 30 years. So there's got to be reasons why people stay. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, prior to the pandemic, non-pandemic times, I can get off really early in the summertime when most people are on vacations and things like that, the, the mail volume goes down, the parcel volume goes down and I can get done with my day two, three, four hours early and I still get paid for a full day. Now, I also, I really like the fact that I spend a majority of my day alone in my, in a vehicle delivering mail, not dealing with other people except for those that happen to be come out to the mailbox and want to chat for a minute. Okay. So, so I guess then, then you're not a, and, but okay. Now I got a question because now it's bringing up a whole other, you know, usually if people are, they're not people person, you know, not people, people like I'm a people person. I'll, I'll talk to the wall and get answers. I love talking to people. I'm a big people guy, but what would make a person that's not a people guy um, have a radio show and <laughs> also write a book? <laughs> you know it kind of it, it kind of like you know it's it's a it's a different dichotomy you know what i mean well it's not that i'm not a people person it's just i like people on in small doses on my own terms okay so small conversations like for example when i'm delivering mail i might stop and talk to somebody for five minutes and i might not see them again for a month yeah they're, they're short little conversations and you know it, the office is what I don't like. The, the the negativity of coworkers always complaining about different things, and that. So that's why I want to get out of the office and get on the street, and be delivering, you know, as quickly as I can. As so far, as talk far. to us about how you got into uh, doing a radio show. Well, the radio show came out. Uh, it's a, um, I don't know. I started. I started by writing my first book. It was uh, you know, progress, really. Um, that was about two years ago. What was the name of it? Progress. Really? <laughs> All right. <laughs> See and, where it's going. <laughs> so about, it was right about two years ago. New York had both passed their, uh, their new abortion laws, removing, you know, any time constraint about when you could or couldn't have an abortion, basically allowing for abortion right up to the, to the moment of delivery. And I looked at that and I thought, well, that's just messed up. I mean, it's like, I don't care your personal opinions on abortion, whether you, whether you think abortion is a choice or whether you, you think it's murder. You know, most people with three brain cells to, run, to rub together will draw a line somewhere and say that you can't have an abortion after this point. You know, whether that's at when, when there's a heartbeat or when the baby can feel pain or whatever you draw a line some point at some point and say anything beyond that is murder and so when these two states basically just removed that line i thought wow we're we're really really going downhill so i decided to write my first book and it's basically just a review of the social quote unquote progress that i've witnessed within my own lifetime things that I saw growing up in America and, and what I, a lot of what I determined was a lot of progress starts as a reasonable idea. It may be even a good idea, but progress is absolutely never satisfied and just always wants to keep going. And that's when we run into trouble. And that's why I, I wrote the first book. Well, you know, in a lot of things, like me and my son were talking, he's 19 years old now, um, very smart kid. You know, he's 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 in college, he's just finished his first year of college. And, you know, we were talking about how he brought up the, you know, we were talking about capitalism, because I'm a big capitalism guy. But he's like, yeah, socialism, you know, looks good on paper, but it's not great on 
you know, to put into practical, practical use, you know, kind of like I just interviewed a young lady and she was, uh, she was born in Cuba, beautiful country. But she says, yeah, but then you got to wait like on line for bread for like six hours. So, you know, socialism looks great on paper, but when you put it into practical use, it doesn't exactly work out really well. And that's why, you know, you see like a lot of younger kids that they, I, I call it the Facebook generation or, you know, Instagram generation because they don't do their homework. You know, they don't study what doesn't work, you know, like Venezuela, you know what I mean? It doesn't work no matter but it, it sounds cool because Bernie said it, you know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of like we're in a, a different world where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to, like I was talking to somebody earlier, we were talking about, you know, uh, business. So, yeah, you know, I want to get paid for more than I, 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 I want to do. And I'm like, don't you have to start from the bottom? Can't you start from the top? So that is stuff like that is what you're talking about. Correct. Right. Right. Um, education was one of the chapters in, in that first book. And and uh, how education is is you know gradually over over the last few decades turned into indoctr- indoctrination. So I wrote the first book, and then I started to blog. And I was encouraged by my oldest son and a, and a couple of coworkers. I was encouraged to start a podcast because you know, nobody reads blogs anymore, old man. And start a podcast. So I started a podcast. And what's the name of the podcast? Liberty Lighthouse. Okay. Talk to us about it. Well, I, the Liberty Lighthouse is, uh, the tagline is, it, you know, the beacon of common sense cutting through the fog of politics. And my goal in my show is to teach people about their own rights and to identify encroachments on their rights and potential encroachments on their rights. And that, that, show that liberty lighthouse got picked up by the mojo 50 radio network and became a weekly show on mojo 50 saturdays at 8 p.m eastern time all right so now i got it you know because I'm, I'm really interested in because i you know i've been podcasting now for a couple of years we're like in the top five percent of the world but you know a lot of times um in, in this cancel culture that we have you know you get some people depends on the shows they get a lot a uh, negative feedback or you know they get a lot of haters so talk to us have you received any of that feedback for on your show from the cancel culture people no not really uh the only feedback the only feedback like that that i've ever got was from a cousin so i just dismiss it um <laughs> The, the Mojo Five O Radio Network is actually a great place for anybody uh, not of the mainstream mindset. Mojo Five O was founded by Doc Thompson, and Doc's vision of Mojo Five O is to be a libertarian talk radio network, and it's libertarian with a small L, not not libertarian party, libertarian the ideal. Okay, can now for people that are listening to this, can you explain that? Break it down. Break it down for me, somebody like me. Break it down, Barney style. Okay. Well, the, the easiest thing is the example of when when I joined the network. The uh, you can imagine that there'd be this big long list of rules of do's and don'ts to be uh, to be on uh, a radio network, and the the list of do's and don'ts was don't take the Lord's name in vain and don't don't say these three words. Other than that, talk about whatever you want. I love that, you know, because that's something that I, 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 I'm a man of faith and, you know, I try to, I, you know, try to do the best that I can every day, even though I fail him every day. So I try not to cuss on the show, but once in a while talking to military guys, you know, you're talking to old Navy SEALs, you know, uh, and, you know, you're talking to, you know, these different operators and you can't hurt, help to be like, F yeah, that's great. You know what I mean? Sometimes oh, and, get all pumped up. And the, the management of Mojo 5 even understands that happen. And as long as it's an occasional once-in-a-while kind of thing, uh, you just owe them 20 bucks. Uh, okay. If it becomes a, a regular thing, then you might find yourself looking for a new a new platform. But okay. um, it's, it's a great group. It's a great uh, uh, organization in that, you know, if I, I haven't, I've been doing my show now for almost two years, and I've never missed an episode. If something comes up that I can't make this episode this Saturday, for example, I've got 
30 other show hosts out there in the network. I send an email to them and say, hey, I can't do my show on Saturday. Can somebody fill in? And there'll be a fill-in. Somebody will step up, and, and, and it won't be running, you know, a best of or something like that. It'll be a new show. Um, now, you know, a lot of people, they don't, you know, realize either in, you know, podcasting, you know, radio shows that it's work. You know, even though I love interviewing people, um, I love talking to people, it's work. And that's why a lot of podcasts, they don't make it past episode eight. 50% of the podcasts in the world don't make it past episode eight. So talk to us about, you know, longevity in your radio show. And, you know, because sometimes there's times where you're like, oh, man, I got to do this. You know, like I said, it's a job. It is a job. So talk to us about how you keep it fresh and how you keep excited about it. Uh, well, I, I never run out of material because I talk politics. So there's always something to talk about. Um, I do things like every, all of the patriotic holidays, for example. I will record a, uh, a, a speech that could be played at, I just, you know, just did Flag Day. Um, for when Juneteenth became a holiday, I spent an hour talking about what Juneteenth means and what it is. And then I went on for you know the second half of the show and and talked about some some uh, Black American heroes that you may or may not have ever heard of. Um, generally speaking, I I decide my show topic on Monday and I'll spend a couple an hour or two a day for the next several days doing whatever research I'm going to do, and then uh, record on either Thursday or Friday. Um, it is work. And there are times when Thursday rolls around and I'm like, oh, crap, I haven't done any show prep. I don't know what I'm going to talk about tonight, um, but I got to do it anyway. And I come up with something. Now, do you interview guests and stuff like that, or is it just you? Uh, I do both. Um, there are times when I have guests. Um, I had several guests for several weeks in a row not long ago. And then I think the last two now have just been me. Um, and then I have a guest lined up for the July 3rd episode, but I don't have anybody lined up for this week. So it's most likely going to be just me. Okay. Now, you know, because, you know, we all know that, you know, UPS, you know, they're um, more or less the government. Have you had any pushback at all from, from work for what you do? Not at all. Uh, just not allowed to talk about it at work. Um, we're, we, I, I did get a, Stop talking politics at work once. Um, there's a very like-minded coworker, and he and I were talking, and somebody complained about it. But um, generally speaking, no. Okay. So talk to us about your new book. I, I loved it, by the way. I Thank devoured it. Because I'm the kind of guy, I, I would make the worst juror in the world. Because I'll have the defense, and I'll be listening, and I'll be like, yeah, I, I, I can understand that point of view. And then I would, for the defense, and I'd be like, yeah. I can understand that point of view. I'm the kind of guy who's like, I try to understand everybody's point of view before giving an opinion. And I, I love, I loved your book and I, I love how easy it is and very, it's easy to consume your book. It's not very hard. So talk about your new book. Well, let's start with that. The easy consumption of it. Um, I should have had bifocals my entire life. And I didn't realize that until I was 25. So I don't like to read. I never developed that love of reading as a child. So everything I write is short, um, short chapters in short books that are easy to read. I, I probably write, I would say, at like a 10th grade level. Um, kind of like our Constitution, written at basically a 10th grade level. <laughs> you know, like I said, it was something that was easy, easy, easily to consume. And you could just say, okay, I, I, I get the point. But it's not like, but you also don't hammer down other people's opinions also, which I like. It wasn't like, you know, a totally a left book, you know, or a right book. It was just facts. Well, that was my goal. And I'm sure that if you if you uh, if you pay attention, you can tell that I I lean far to the right. Uh, I I did try to keep that, you know, to a minimum in the book. Uh, but the book is, you know, so simple, even a, even a politician can understand. Simple ideas for seemingly complex political issues. It's a collection of ideas that I've had over the last almost two years of hosting the Liberty Lighthouse. 
it's ideas that have come up with conversations with guests and ideas that have that have been spawned by other people and just ideas that have come to me in some way or another around the show they're all very simple very easy to understand very easy to explain ideas that would have dramatic impacts on very significant political issues and like and like you said you know a lot of things for some reason like in the military you know we're taught you know one way we're taught the book way and then we're taught when you get in the field there's a there's the field way there's the common sense way to do things and sometimes it seems like in our government we get so back bogged down in red tape that it's just like there is no more common sense. It's just, well, it's just, just the way we've always done it, so we're going to keep doing it the same way, even if it's broken. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly, except for it's not the same way. It's getting worse all the time. It's, it's, it's expanding upon itself. The, the broken system is, is growing even within its brokenness. So what do you, you know, what are, like, I have a couple of chapters that I, 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 I truly love, but what are, your, what are some of your, um, the people that have read the book, what are some of the things that they've taken away from it and say, hmm, that does make a lot of sense. So um, I think that the, the easiest one, the first one is, is the idea of uh, what I call in the book, forced philanthropy, forced philanthropy. Uh, and that's, that's our federal government giving money to nonprofit organizations that are politically active. So uh, I, I s- cite a statistic in there that 80% of the money that goes into nonprofit organizations comes from the federal or comes from government. Uh, and all money in the government is your money. It's my money. It's taxpayer money. It's money that they robbed from us in one way or another in the form of taxes. And I say robbed from us rather tongue-in-cheek but it's our money and they're they're funding nonprofit organizations with your tax dollars now did they ask you if you wanted your tax dollars to fund this cause or that cause because nobody ever asked me if i wanted to fund you know whatever nonprofit organization if i want to give money to a nonprofit organization i'll give money to a nonprofit organization you, you don't need to be giving them my tax dollars so in the idea of our 28 trillion dollar national debt nobody ever wants to attack the the big scary budget items like the military or, or uh, social welfare and things like that those are those are taboo topics that'll that'll get you in a lot of trouble in washington but if you save a dollar on ink pens versus saving a dollar on fighter jets you saved a dollar either way so the quick easy bite of the enormous debt elephant that I, I think should be the easiest and fastest thing that we could do is stop funding nonprofit organizations with tax money. Um, now, like I said, I, I've, I've interviewed hundreds of people and a lot of them have nonprofits and they have such a hard time getting funding. So it's weird that you say it. Is it like in the military, we call it the good old boy system. So is that what you're talking about? I think that's a huge part of it. I mean, look how much money the the arts and humanities and museums got in COVID relief. If the museums are all closed, why the heck are you giving them money? Yeah. There's definitely some kind of a good old boy network going on there. Some kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type of thing. So what is some what is you know, of your common sense approach to fix this that's that particular system well i i would think that if if a a nonprofit organization is is run well and isn't of a good cause it should be able to get funding itself especially if you take another idea out of the book and stop taking so much of our tax money it's almost impossible to calculate how much of your money goes to taxes in one way or another and most people that have ever even attempted it will tell you that it's well over half of your money ends up in some government coffee somewhere. So if you got to keep even half of what goes away, if you just instantaneously got a 25% raise because they weren't taking so much in taxes, I bet you'd be more likely to put more money in the, in, in the collection plate at church and more money to help 
you know, 22 a day or whatever non, you know, St. Jude's, whatever nonprofit it is that you believe in. Well, you know, like I've, I, you know, I try to do, I do a lot of research, you know, I, I do a lot of studying on different nonprofits and I'm not going to say which ones they are because I'm not about to get sued, but there's a couple supposedly nonprofits that only like eight cents out of every dollar actually are going to help whatever cause it is. The rest is administration fees. Right. And salaries of, of executives. Yeah. And that, that needs to be exposed. And there are organizations out there that do that exposure. Uh, I remember, oh, it's probably been 10 years or more now when uh, the Wounded Warrior Project was was you know, in the spotlight for something like that. I don't remember the exact percentages, but it was the percentage that was, that was uh, appalling. And because of the spotlight that was shined on them, they fixed it. So then how can we um, fix some of the issues when, okay, now put, I stopped watching the news. Um, I, I only put on the local news just to find out what the weather's going to be. Because, you know, if I put on CNN, they were talking about Trump. If I put on Fox News, they were talking about Trump. And I'm like, all right, I get it. One loves him, the other one hates him. I get it. Isn't there something else we could talk about? No, for the last five years, that's all that they've been able to talk about. So now, you know, how do we, you know, I'm a big, I love uh, One American News. That's one of my favorite. If I'm going to watch news, that's what I watch. But how do we, you know, with this whole cult, you know, cancel culture that we have, how do we go about making change when people are, like you said, there's people just, you know, living in, you know, mansions and driving boats and yachts. And, oh, I'm the CEO of a nonprofit. So how do we change the system when you know that there's going to be people fighting that system? Well, the book is about uh, all all about changing within government. And I don't expect any politicians to read a book that's entitled so simply even a politician can understand that that's, you know, the, the title of the book is an insult to politicians. I don't expect them to read it, even though I did give copies to all of the elected officials in my personal uh, hierarchy. Um, my goal with the book is to get people, voters, to read so simple even a politician can understand. I want the average voter to realize that politics does not need to be as convoluted and and messy as it is that simple ideas can help and can work and if the if your elected officials won't act upon simple ideas then get rid of them and find candidates who will and you know like um i just had um we went to my cousins for father's day and you know there, there was my, my uncle herb um, old timer you know 75 years old you know, he he goes, you know, all the way to the right. Then you have one of my 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 other uncles. He goes all the way to the left. And we're always trying to solve the world's problems, but you know, we can never solve anything. We're just like, all right, we'll we'll agree to disagree. But you know, a lot of it is like you said. A, a lot of it is common sense, but a lot of people don't realize. You know, you hear all these people. You know, well, the president, the president, the president, blah blah blah. It's like, yeah, but you really need to concentrate on who your mayor is, who's your, you know, who's on the school board, you know, who, those are the people that affect your life directly. You know, I, but a lot of people don't believe in that. They're just like, well, I'm going to vote for the president and Biden's going to take care of me or Trump's going to take care of me. It's like, that's not the way to, like the commercial says, that's not the way this works. That's not the way any of this works. You know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean. I have said many times on my own show that I think the county sheriff is the most important elected official in our country. Because if you think about, well, let's just use the whole tyrannical uh, scenario. Let's, let's say that we elect a president who really goes tyrannical. And I don't mean, ah, uh, he says bad things or, ah, uh, they're passing progressive laws. I mean, somebody who really goes nuts and wants to confiscate your guns and wants to, you know, whatever, just lock us all in our houses. Well, the federal government doesn't have the manpower to do that. They can't go door to door 
and collect 400 million guns across the United States. So if they wanted to confiscate guns, they would have to rely on the county sheriff to do it. So the person that you put in your county sheriff's seat becomes the most important person in that scenario. If we, if we need to fight our own government, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence, when, when the government becomes tyrannical, it's our duty to overthrow that and replace it with a government that works for us. If it comes to that, it's the county sheriff that is going to be your best friend. So I firmly believe that the county sheriff is the most important role in our country. Look at how many counties stood up and became First Amendment sanctuaries and Second Amendment sanctuaries and, and were standing up to what they felt were unconstitutional actions by our federal government. Okay, so, and, and I, I totally agree. Like, I'm friends with, you know, with our mayor and I'm friends with, you know, people on the boards, you know, and, and the teachers, you know, because those are the people that directly affect my life. You know, they're the ones that, you know, affect how my children are being taught or how my, my property taxes and all that stuff. But a lot of people will just think, well, you know, because uh, I live in New Jersey, so obviously that's a very uh, democratic state. And now they just legalize marijuana. So we're going to see how that goes. But, um, I, you know, I believe that you're just trying to dumb everybody down, you know, but that's my opinion anyway. But, you know, I think me and you have a lot, a lot of the same opinions, but I also don't, you know, like I, my best friend, he's, he's a Democrat. So we talk about all, you know, all the time we're going back and forth, but a lot of times, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, sometimes you just got to just look at each other and be like, Hey bro, this doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? No matter what, you know, what side you're on, sometimes stuff just like for me, I believe, you know, you can't be for, you know, you can't be against abortion and you can't be for the death penalty. You know, murder's murder. You know, which way are you looking at it? And I get that all the back when I talk to my friends and they're like, but, but I'm like, wait a minute, you can't have it both ways. You know, it's common sense. But a lot of people, like you said, don't use common sense, right? Right, right. And that's, again, that, that, that's the, the, uh, the idea behind the Liberty Lighthouse is, is to use common sense to cut through the fog of politics. And, and the same with, with the new book. The you know, idea is so simple, even a politician can understand, is that it, you know, we don't need an 8,000 or 40,000 or 90,000 page law for every law that they pass in Congress. But, the, you know, the, the tax law is like 40,000 pages long. That's ridiculous. There is no need for 40,000 page tax code. It's used to manipulate you and I. It's used to, to manipulate our behavior and to reward the people that they want to reward and the companies that they want to reward. And that needs to stop. And that's only going to stop if when we start electing enough people that see through that BS and start thinking in simple terms. I said early on that I, I'm pretty far to the right. And if you read the book, you'll probably be able to tell that. But I, I don't care if you're on the left. Simple ideas are not strictly a left, you know, a, a conservative right, right-leaning person's territory you can have simple ideas as a liberal you can have simple ideas as a progressive you can have simple ideas as a democrat the idea of the book is think in simple terms not you know use these exact ideas and you know like me and you you know we're both military people you know and, and most of our people that listen to this are military so you know whether you're a democrat republican blah 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 yada 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 when you're getting shot at, the bullets don't go, hey, are you a Democrat? You know, they don't say, hey, are you a Republican? They don't care. And a lot of times, you know, we think, you know, we're, we're all about our battle, our battle buddies. You know, like we'll, we'll jump in a foxhole. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat and Republican. You know, we're going to watch each other's backs. And I think that's something that's sorely missed in this country to today is especially I'm, I'm a big I back the blue. My family backs the blue. You know, a couple of years ago, my daughter was actually uh, 
for Halloween, she was a police officer. So this family backs the blue, you know, but I think we're getting away from a lot of that stuff to where, you know, like I said, this whole cancel culture to where we're forgetting just common respect. You know, like a lot of people, they say, well, you know, Democrats, well, you know, coming from the South where a lot of, you know, Democrats are, they stop saying yes, sir. No, sir. They stop that respect factor. You know what I mean? So okay. I think we need to get back to the middle somehow. Right. Well, uh, analogous to your story there, uh, in my first book, in the chapter on sexuality, I, I talked about it. It's like, well, well, when I was a sailor, I didn't care if the guy next to me identified as a purple homosexual anteater. As long as he did his job and had my back, I, I really didn't care. And there's a lot of things in life that should be like that. Like, you don't really care. Your personal life is your personal life. Just don't shove it down my throat. Yeah, I mean, um, and and I totally agree, you know, uh, especially, you know, being a white, for me, for being a white male, you know, uh, happily married, believe in the sanctity of marriage. Um, I'm the outcast. You know, like if I put a post out on Facebook, well, I'm proud to be white and i'm proud to be you know a christian you get hammered for it but if you say you know um, i'm proud to be gay and or whatever it's you get praised for it so i was like wait a minute you can't have it both ways you know what i'm saying it's the world that we're living if you married to one wife you know one woman and you're not fooling around and you're not you know doing all these things you're, you're looked down upon you know but if you're doing those other things you're kind of praised. You see what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's complete and utter hypocrisy. So how to, you know, cause I, I love to teach this. So, you know, I love this being a teaching episode. Um, how do we start, you know, cause it's a big thing that we're talking about, but how do we little steps that we can take to get back to center? Uh, wow. That's a, that's a huge, huge question. Um, I think it's starting to happen now. The, the one one step that I see starting to happen now that will have a huge impact is the parents that are starting to step up, stand up against school boards and try to uh, to, to limit the indoctrination factor uh, of, of public schools. We need to get schools out of of, of the uh, social movement and back to teaching, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, stuff like that. Um, and again, that's that's another expansive government problem. We had the best schools in the world up until the 1960s when we created the Federal Department of Education, and now we're almost last. Yeah, like you know, like my my best friend I was telling you about, you know, him and his wife are, you know, they're both teachers, and you know, they're both Democrats, and uh, you know, they say like 80 percent of the teachers are. But like I got a friend, he's a retired, also a retired veteran, but he was he's a, a Republican. And he's like, when I go to work, it's like I'm totally I'm I'm on an island. He's like, you know, and I can't say anything because I'm, I'm worried about getting fired. You see what I'm saying? So it's kind of like, wait a minute. How did this all happen? How did this come about? You know, I, I'm not exactly sure how it happened either. Other than, um, you know, I've heard theories that you know, Tucker Carlson said not long ago that, you know, the people on the right, generally speaking, just go along to get along and the people on the left keep, keep marching. And, and the people on the right for, you know, for decades have been like, ah, oh, you know, that little tiny step there doesn't matter. No, we'll, we'll get them next time. And in the meantime, the, the progressive movement never stops and just keeps marching. That, that, that's basically the, the theme of the first book, uh, The Progress Really. Um, is is the the constant insatiable march of progress and at some point it, it just it's not progress anymore stop progress stops being progress at some point i mean uh, like for me i guess i think it's starts it's it's regression we're actually a lot of people are regressing like i you know i used to run a, a million dollar company and i was uh management and i'd have people come in for job jobs asking me if i you know if, if i'm hiring you know and they would come in with like jeans and a t-shirt and i'm like so you got a job i'm like 
I got a job. You ain't got a job. Why don't you go back home, get dressed and come back and talk to me? And I've noticed a lot of people now, like me, they can't just sit there and have a conversation like me and you are. They can't just, you know, have a cup of coffee at a, at a, at a coffee place without picking up their phone, you know, without texting it. They don't know how to conversate. Do you, do you find that's a major problem that you start seeing people not being able to just talk and conversate? I, I personally haven't haven't witnessed that within my own person within within my life. Um, however, I do see it out and about. I mean, I I make note of when you go out to dinner and you look over at a family of four and all four of them are staring at a screen and nobody's talking to each other. Um, and you believe it or not, you uh you just referenced you said uh progress becomes regressive. Um, that actually goes all the way back to uh to, I think it was Calvin Coolidge his independence day speech where he said that um you know to to march beyond the principles of the declaration of independence are are no longer progressive but they're regressive so so you were uh, em, uh, uh emulating uh, calvin coolidge there whether you knew it or not yeah, well like before we got on because like i'm a big i can't read anymore because i'm 80 percent blind so i listen to a lot of books on audible you know, and a lot of podcasts. And I'm listening to a book that's the autobiography of Andrew Carnegie from like the 1920s. It's like, it's like, a, it's like 11 hour, 11 hour audio book. But they were talking even back then in the 1890s, 1900s, that the problems that people want something for nothing was even causing problems back in the 19, early 1900s. So this is nothing new. You know I mean? During the first progressive era, <laughs> I always like to point that out. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully, you know, with people like us, you know, we can just try to, I try to love on everybody. You know, I try to, I care about everybody. But like you said, I think in order to get back to center, we just have to start making some, you know, common sense. Like, like in my house, my wife tells me, if we don't have money in the checkbook, we can't go out shopping. That's common sense. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? So how do we really, hey, you know, we're $28 trillion in debt. Let's let's donate more money to, to Venezuela. It's like, what? Right. <laughs> right. And, and keep funding, you know, museums and libraries. I, I Here's how I've used this example before. We're $28 trillion in debt. And that's that number is so big, most people don't understand. Like, it doesn't make any sense to them. So Break that down. Let's say that you're twenty eight thousand dollars in debt. You, uh, you know, you, you're renting a house, and you've got a car payment and some credit cards, and you're twenty eight thousand dollars in debt. Well, the federal government being twenty eight trillion dollars in debt and giving money to arts and humanities would be like you running out and buying a Picasso while you're twenty eight thousand dollars in debt. Yeah, and you know, and a lot of people, you know, because uh, you know, like I said, you know. I try to learn as much as I can. I only got, I'm only a ninth grade educated man, you know, but I've read over 5,000 books. And a lot of people don't realize is, you know, once we got taken off the gold standard, it was just a free for all. It's just like, there's Joe in the back with a money printing machine, just printing out money. And it's never stopped. You know what I mean? Right. And that started with FDR taking us off the gold standard so he could print more money to try to spur the economy during the Great Depression and then was, was shall we say, finalized by uh, Nixon when he took us off, when he said, quote, unquote, temporarily taking us off the gold standard. Um, we don't even have any gold to back us up anymore. I don't care what anybody says about Fort Knox, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing. There's nowhere near enough. I, I actually did an entire episode of the Liberty Lighthouse on this topic, and, and I had all the real numbers of how much gold there was versus how much currency had been printed. In. Where do you think I got that from? <laughs> I'm listening to your episode. Because I was stationed at Fort Knox, so that's why it really interested me. You know, people say, all oh, the money there. Ain't, there ain't no money over there. That's an empty vault, in my opinion. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, there's so now, enough. All right. So last two questions I ask everybody, you know, because I love your books. I, di I didn't read the first one yet, but I definitely got the second one and I've read it twice now. Well, it's also, they're both also available on Audible. Yep. So now how do we find your books? 
how do we find your um, your radio show and how can we support your mission? Well, the uh, the Liberty Lighthouse is on Mojo Five O Radio Network Saturdays at eight p.m. Eastern Time, five p.m. Pacific, uh, but then immediately turns into a podcast. So anywhere you find a podcast, you can find the Liberty Lighthouse. Um, the book, the new book, so simple even a politician can understand, is a pre-order right now. You can uh, pre-order it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Audible, and at least a dozen places where you can get eBooks. Uh, the old book, Progress Really, uh, is available in all of those same places and more because it's two years old and it's out there. The easiest way to find any of them to support me and my mission, anything like that, is to go to liberty-lighthouse.com. If you click on the Books tab, you'll find all of the places that you can find both of the books. Uh, there's donate buttons there. One of, There's a yellow donate button that says donate for constitutions. I give out pocket constitutions everywhere I go. And just this past weekend, there was a car show in town, and I put on an American flag blazer, and I stood in the middle of the car show handing out constitutions to everybody that walked by, and I handed out 500 of them in about five hours. So uh, if you'd like to support that cause, there's a yellow donate button specifically for that. Uh, you know, we we take some subscriptions. There's a store. You can buy some cool stuff. Um, and then just listen. Support the show, like, share, uh, rate, review, all of, all of those kinds of things. I do a one-minute news headline review Monday through Friday every morning. Uh, it's, it's a news headline review with my own personal snarky comments to go along with them. And then the one-hour weekly show on Saturday nights. Cool. Now, last question that I, you know, I ask everybody because, you know, I, I, I live in New Jersey. So, you know, we're just getting out of COVID. Um, our great uh, mayor... Uh, or governor shut down like everything. So we were like in total lockdown and we lost so many jobs and, you know, we got some parents now just because they lost their jobs or you're driving for Uber or DoorDash, just trying to put food on the kids on the table. And we had a lot of parents that grandparents that were homeschooling kids, you know, because the parents were out trying to make a living. So if you ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're pretty much not going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step um, in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do that. So if there's somebody out there listening that like us, you know, that's sick and tired of the system, the way it's working against us and not working for us. What is something somebody can do in the next 24 hours to start maybe start making some changes? Wow. Uh to make a significant change within the next 24 hours, the only thing I could say that you, you could definitely do within 24 hours is reach out and find your uh, uh, elected officials online and, and connect with them, even if it's just send them, sending them an email. There are websites out there where you put in your address and it'll tell you every, everybody from your county commissioner all the way up to the president. And uh, you should know those people. You should be able to email and, and contact any of them uh, anytime that something rubs you the wrong way, so to speak. I love it. So, guys, if you're listening to this, definitely get the pre-order, get the book, get get the first book. Um, if you're if you're sick and tired, like you say, if you're, the only time you know change actually happens is when people get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think in America, I think we're at that point. And I think uh, you are doing a great thing. You're doing a great service, and uh, I'm truly proud to be able to call you a friend. And um, I'm just grateful that you took time to come on the show. Now, this is not going to come out for a while because I'm like 60 episodes deep that I've still got to put out. So, but it's going to go out on all the platforms everywhere. So, brother, I'm grateful that you decided to take the time to hang out with me today. Well, if you wait after uh, July 4th, it won't be a pre-order for, for the new book anymore. It'll be just available. And it was my pleasure to come on. I was, uh, was very happy to get the invite. All right, brother. Well, have an amazing week. Um, God bless you and take care and keep on doing the right thing. Let's try to get this country back to center. Absolutely. All right, brother. Have a great week. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying our show, if you love what we're doing, if you would like to support us, we have a whole bunch of great stuff coming out. 
We have a brand new t-shirt line that's coming out. Hats, coffee mugs, any kind of swag that lets your friends know that you support Vertical Momentum and you're always looking to get better. Also, we have our new coffee brand coming out. It's called Vertical Momentum Coffee. It's ass-kicking coffee. And, and it will it will get you moving in the morning. So, guys, if you're interested, go to www.richardkaufman.net. Check us out. Leave us a note. Tell us what you'd like, and we'll actually send it to you. The new website is being built. So if you guys want to, our book is out there on Amazon. It's called A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Definitely check it out. It talks about my story, but it also talks about how to survive depression, how to survive addiction. All right, guys, I love you. Thank you so much for always supporting our mission, which is to save lives. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.